Welcome to The Sit Down, the podcast where you and I explore the art of superwoman. I'm always keen to hear what is on your mind, so please take a look at the contact info in the show notes and send through those questions or even topic suggestions that help so much in us staying connected. Today's episode is a straight-up chat about womanomics. We take a national conversation and boil it down into final points that affect us as women, mothers, professionals, wives, and boss ladies. Womanomics takes into account all the considerations we make on a daily basis, all the decisions we make on a daily basis, and how it affects our future, and how we invest for prosperity, and how we hone in on our finances and wealth creation. So let's get straight into it. This is The Sit Down with Olwe Tule Shabani, a podcast for women everywhere who are exploring the art of superwoman. The much-anticipated budget speech has come and gone. Articles were written about it and commentators gave their analysis on the budget. We know that no substantial tax increases were announced. But what else did Finance Minister Tito Mboweni say and how will it affect or inform our daily lives? How will it also affect our womanomics? So today we have chartered accountant and political commentator Kaya Sitole here to break it all down for us. Hi Kaya, welcome to the sit down. So there was no VAT increase, there was no increase in personal tax. Um, We were expecting quite a lot worse, weren't we? Yes, I think for a lot of people there was the anticipation that now that we know that the government is struggling to raise enough money to cover its costs, the one option would be to try and raise more money by obviously increasing the various taxes that you charge uh, citizens. And in this particular instance, the danger was always the fact that a lot of citizens do feel already overtaxed. So if you think that that's the only option of really just balancing your books, you might end up with far too many people coming back and then saying, well, actually, we're paying too much already. And the problem, of course, is that you're only raising taxes in order to cover your costs. So what are you doing about the cost? How are you managing the cost so that at least even when you come to us and ask for more money, we can see that you are doing your best in order to cut the cost. So that's always the tension that exists between the Minister of Finance and the electorate and the taxpayers. And I think in this case, the minister took the view that actually he had exhausted all possible avenues of trying to extract more in the form of revenue. So he then went and targeted the cost base, which is him saying, I'm going to cut down how much it costs to run the government so that I don't have to keep coming back to you to ask for more money. Okay, so... Some of the key points um, that the finance minister made, what of them will affect the everyday woman and mom? So the main issues, of course, is when a minister takes the view that I'd rather give every single taxpayer a bit more for them to take home every single month, that is usually a very positive thing. The problem that we tend to have is that, unfortunately, the type of concessions that the minister makes mean very little in the form of after-tax income. So, for example, every year we always see the question of when you're actually going to try and raise more taxes, are people better off in one year versus the year that that they were in before? And the main intention point here tends to be, if you look at inflation, for example, which is regarded as a proxy for the increase in the cost of living, if inflation 
is going up by 6%, then the minister has a duty to try and then say, based on what your income was last year, I should leave you in no worse position than you were last year in the relation to whatever it is that I do. So whether I increase the taxes, whatever adjustments that I make, then I should not leave you worse off. And unfortunately, in the South African context, it's very difficult to actually have a very linear approach to that. Because, for example, if you are a mother and you were uh, raising a couple of children that are in school or even in private school, some of the tax concessions that you see here do not directly speak to your own circumstances. So it's really a long-range analysis where you're saying, well, the fact that it didn't raise VAT means that the cost of bread didn't go up by how much that it could have gone up by some I'm better off. But it's difficult for someone to put together an entire basket list of what it is that perhaps an ordinary South African woman is exposed to on a monthly basis in terms of costs and then do an analysis that says, well, actually, last year, this is how much you're spending. This year, this is why you're better off or worse off. So it's a difficult exercise. But obviously, the fact that there weren't any direct increases in particular taxes means that we're not worse off than last year. Now, me saying that we're not worse off than last year does not mean that we're better off than last year. Yeah, I mean, my children's school fees still went up by 10%. <laughs> Yeah, and that's the big problem that you find in relation to all the other services that are outside the scope of government intervention. Yeah. So for a lot of yeah. us that depend on a lot of privately um, you know, uh, provided activities, those activities themselves can indeed increase at a rate that exceeds what the government's definition of inflation is. And remember, the government's analysis is based on a range of products. So, of course, they could say legitimately that we believe that the cost of living has gone up by 6%, but you and I might have exposure to a couple of high-ticket items that matter most to us, where the increase in the cost is much higher than that. So it's always going to be, there's always going to be a disconnect between what the general uh, statement is from the state, because they look at a much broader range of products versus what you and I feel in our own economic corners, where if I have children in private school, for example, then of course the cost increases then are not tied to what the public service um, numbers are. So I might feel that I'm worse off as a citizen. Somebody else who probably doesn't have the same exposure might say, well, actually, the type of things that I buy on a regular basis didn't go up at all. So then you've got that particular spectrum of people who say, even though inflation is at a particular number, I'm actually not as much affected. And other people will say, well, actually, that inflation number understates really the cost of living as far as I'm concerned. And one of these things are the fact that we have a looming fuel hike next month. How will this now affect our lived experiences? Now, remember, the fuel hack is one of the low-hanging fruits that the government always has. And the important thing that we must think about when it comes to fuel is that fuel is what we call the type of daily consumption uh, product that everybody needs to get along. So even if you don't own a car, you are not insulated from what the fuel price is about. And of course, government understanding that this is the one thing that people are not going to opt out of simply means that whenever they need to raise additional taxes, they can always target it and there's nothing you can do about it. Now, this is different from you and I perhaps saying, oh, I'd like to buy a laptop this year or I'd like to buy an iPad for my children because if the answer says, actually, it's a bit more expensive, then I can simply say, no, I'm not going to do it until I can afford it. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to issues like fuel, these are the things that every single day in order for you to exist within the economy that we have, you have to participate in the fuel value chain. So whether you're a passenger, 
yep. taking the how train, whether you're a passenger in a taxi or whether you own your own car, you are actually going to pay fuel in some way or another on a daily basis. And remember, even if you do not leave your house, for you to be able to um, even switch on the lights, because ESCOM itself buys diesel, for example, for you to be able to feed your children, all the goods that you're buying are themselves going to have to be transported from the source point to the end user. So the fuel increases always in fact affect absolutely everyone in one way or another. So government knows that. They know very well that you can't opt out of it, so they always find a way to sneak in that increase in one way or another. And the big problem that we have is that when it comes to fuel prices, remember, it's a combination of what we do uh, locally as the government. So we add all these fuel levies because we need to raise taxes. But it's also subject to external forces that we cannot control, simply because it is denominated in a foreign currency. So if the dollar and rent exchange rate deteriorates tomorrow, there's absolutely nothing you and I can do to intervene, only to be told that next month, well, we have to pay more for fuel because somebody in some random country decided to start a war. And obviously, then the fuel prices had a spike or some issue like mm. that. So it's a very delicate one when it comes to fuel, but no one is insulated from it. Even the grandmother who hasn't left her house this whole week is actually suffering the effect of the increase in the fuel price, even though it's not a direct one. Yeah. And and what, what are the ways in which we can sort of cushion these things from a personal budgeting perspective for it not to hit or knock me as hard as it could? I can answer that question for everything except fuel. <laughs> the <problem laughs> so there's absolutely fuel, nothing. So it, um, I mean, it's such a pervasive cost for every single thing that you do, it is difficult to achieve what I might refer to as perfect insulation from it. Mm. And of course, perfect insulation would be for me to say to you, look, this particular product has gone up in value, you can't afford it, and then you can simply say, oh no, I definitely do not need it, I can live without it, and therefore you can completely opt out of it altogether. In relation to fuel, that quite simply is not possible. So what you really can try to do is to try and identify the avenues where you've got direct exposure. So direct exposure is you owning a car that is a petrol guzzler that takes up five liters, to, for example, to, to, to fill up. So in that case, you've got a direct um, opportunity to then say, perhaps this two-liter engine car that I bought uh, two or three years ago is no longer appropriate based on my budget, then you can sort of scale down or switch down. Okay. So you really are only in charge of the things where you've got a direct ability to influence a decision, where you've got a direct ability to switch your options. So instead of you driving three cars as a family between the housekeeper, the wife and the husband, you then decide that perhaps one of the parents is going to take the children to school. So therefore, we do not have to have a third car driving out. So there are some mechanisms where you can then decide that as a particular family unit, we're in charge of this part of the process. So therefore, we're going to do things differently. But unfortunately, far too many citizens are not in a position to do that. Far too many people that are working class in nature are dependent on the entire transport value chain, which simply means that the ability to intervene and say, actually, at this rate, I can't afford it, so therefore I have to do things differently, it's limited. And I think one of the great tragedies that we have in the country is just how poor public infrastructure is, particularly public transportation infrastructure. Mm. Because if you think, for example, on, of all, all about people who depend on the trains for them to get to a place of work, trains are by, de- by design the cheapest mode of transport, but the reliability the of the train simply means that you can wake up budget for a whole month by the train only for you to be told that the train is not working today because somebody forgot to pay an ESCOM bill as you saw for example last week in the Western Cape yes. and suddenly you're then exposed to 
the type of transportation costs that you can't possibly budget for. And there's no one who's going to come back and say, well, actually, this is how we're going to refund you or compensate you for that exposure that was unanticipated. So it's a great tragedy that we quite simply leave far too many vulnerable people exploited because politicians make the wrong decisions or administrators make the wrong decisions. So it is ideal that we should be able to insulate ourselves. But unfortunately, it comes to fuel. It's really difficult to find that form of insulation. So Tito Mboweni put a lot of emphasis on the need to put ease on doing business in South Africa. Um, Was it a business friendly budget and how can we we use it to our advantage and in our businesses? My first response when he said that is that I started wondering what exactly were the impediments that he was referring to. So, of course, the question when we talk about the ease of doing businesses, we have to then distinguish between the parts of the system that people interact with. So is he saying that the cost of registering a business is now cheaper than it was before? But more importantly, was that the thing that people identified as the one particular impediment? Is it talking about the cost of financing on an ongoing basis a business? So if you then saying you're starting a business and you need access to working capital, is he now saying that actually I think the way financing works is that it's prohibitive for small businesses, so therefore we're doing things differently. So it was one of those issues where the rhetoric sounded very good, but when you then dig deeper and then you ask what exactly is the substance of what he's just said, I was found struggling. So when he then said that you're easing the cost of doing business, I need to be able to understand what is the definition of the cost of doing business as far as the government is concerned? Are they talking about the compliance burden where we know that the cost of actually just getting your business started requires you to interact with so many different parts of the state that don't always talk to each other. That in itself is a cost. That's a burden for people starting businesses. Is he now saying that we're doing that differently? Or is it simply saying that the cost of financing businesses on an ongoing basis is what we're tackling as a government? So the detail was was very limited. And for me, in the absence of the detail, I regard it as nothing more than political rhetoric. And mm. until I see some evidence of the government saying that 12 months ago, this was the value chain of a person starting a business from day one and generating their first invoice and then receiving their first payment. This year, 12 months later, this is what the process looks like. And this process is more efficient. It's cheaper and more accessible than it was a year before. In the absence of actual hardcore evidence, I unfortunately have spent enough time with politicians to be able to dismiss their rhetoric as just the type of political nonsense that we hear, particularly on platforms of the nature. Mm. And I mean, there was also the encouragement um, and the encouraging remarks about supporting small business, travel and tourism. Once again, was that enough? No, because the ways, the best way to support small businesses is to pay them on time. And remember, for years on end, we've been saying to government in particular, it is completely morally objectionable that you, as a state that says that you're pro-developmental, that says that you're promoting and supporting small businesses, are the people that are actually fully responsible for the majority of small business failures that you see here. Because let's face it, the way our um, economy works is that you're more likely to get some a listening ear within government structures than within the private 
a sector space. So if you're starting a business, your opportunity of going to a top 40 listed company and saying, this is my business, and for them to onboard you in the absence of a track record elsewhere is severely limited. So government plays a critical role in simply opening up the space for people to be able to build up a track record of delivery. Unfortunately, government understanding that it's regarded as an important player by a lot of small businesses means that government can simply ignore your demand for payment because they know that you don't have an option. So that particular problem of government not paying, um, you know, service providers on time has actually contributed a much greater um, a deal to a lot of businesses falling apart on the basis that their cash flow just quite simply is not sustainable. So if the government is going to now turn around and say that we're doing all that we can to support small businesses, there has to be a directive. And the 30-day directive for me is meaningless because we know a couple of years ago they said government is going to pay within 30 days. No, government didn't, doesn't have to pay within 30 days. Government receives a service and I've paid it and I've provided the service. Why must government wait until 30 days to pay me? What's wrong with the 15-day time frame, for example. And until you do simple things like that on people that are already part of the ecosystem, you're not going to attract new participants by coming up with all these fancy and idealistic propositions when I, as a new business person, will then speak to someone who's worked the government before and they'll simply tell me, well, they still don't pay on time, so therefore all the things that they say to you are actually just pipe dreams. So we know that about the state and if it wants to be able to say to us that it's doing things differently, it needs to start doing it with the people that are already within the system rather than using it as a selling point to try and attract new people into the marketplace when you know just what the big issues are within government procurement, for example. Mm. And then there was the contentious announcement to cut government spending in the public sector wages. We already know that women are severely underpaid in all spaces. What does this mean for women working in particularly government and public sector spaces um, to make the step to secure their own finances with the cuts that are going to be made? So the difficult part in, in relation to the public service wage bill is the fact that, according to the finance minister, the rate of wage inflation within the public service has always been above the national inflation rate. And why those two things are important to look at together, excuse me, is that the government's source of income is tax revenues. So if the government says that the economy is growing at 5%, it means that at best, their own tax revenues are only going to grow by 5%. So if the government then takes that particular uh, revenue source that's growing at 5% and then decides that in order to pay the people that enable government to function in order, and, and decides to pay them at a rate that's much higher than that 5%, it means that the government is getting poorer every single year. So Tito Mboweni seems to be of the view that it's no longer sustainable for us to be offering wage increases that are above our ability to actually raise additional revenue. That's really what the issue is. The secondary problem, of course, is that we, as the end users of government services, in our capacities, the people who use the roads and particular infrastructure, we then have to ask ourselves the question, do we feel that the service delivery has actually increased or improved at a rate that warrants those wage inflations? And unfortunately, far too many people will say to you that that isn't the case. So what he's simply trying to break here is this deadlock that exists between public service public servants simply demanding a particular wage without signing up or committing to delivering a service to society that matches that wage increase 
and is also dealing with the secondary problem of the fact that if I'm paying much more than I'm able to raise, I'm eventually going to go bankrupt. And the question is, where this money going to come from? Now, of course, within the civil service, you've got men, women, and young people. And I think in his particular pronouncements, he didn't make that particular distinction of saying, well, actually, even within the civil service, we do acknowledge that there are still particular wage gaps that need to be addressed. And then these are issues that we cannot ignore. And I think, obviously, if a person is working in the civil service and we're looking at an overhaul of how compensation structures work, then this will be an ideal opportunity for somebody to say to the finance minister, well, yes, you are saying that there's a problem with the public service wage bill, but you're talking at an abstract level of simply saying that it's too much. But let us look into the granular details of who you are paying and why you're paying them and how much you're paying them. And if there are significant discrepancies across the gender line, for example, or even across racial lines, then let us address those at the same instance that we're dealing with the bigger question. But unfortunately, far too many people tend to sit out conversations involving finance because we tend to think that they're far too complicated. And that means we need to live with the consequences of them much longer than we thought. Absolutely. And one more, the last thing is, Property that costs 1 million rand or less will no longer be subject to transfer duty. This was one of the big moves or one of the moves that impact the middle class that was a favorite. Why and what does this change for the modern woman who is looking to buy her first property? Look, I think the change has been that up until now, the first the property is costing up to 900,000 rand with free from transfer duty. So all they do is that on an annual basis, they review the threshold and this year they've moved it up to a million rand. So of course, for people that are probably trying to buy their first property, then to get the first step into the property ladder, this does make a big difference because these are all the additional costs of home ownership that you actually don't see when a person advertises a house. So when a person advertises a house, they don't tell you that it's this price plus all these other costs of actually just getting it registered. So it is an important step forward. And you would hope that obviously a lot of people are going to take advantage of that opportunity and say, I think that I can actually be now looking into the market and seeing what's available out there and also then trying to, um, you know, get a step into the property ladder. So again, this is a very important thing that South African women in particular should be looking into, into and then saying that perhaps it's now our opportunity. And I think also the big issue that we need to address is that in particular traditional capitalism, it's not always the best way to sort of do things as an individual. So if there are two women out here who probably thought up until now they had access or they had the ability to spend 500,000 rand in a property, you might find that now if you combine your resources, you buy a property, whether eternity investment property or something else, this is an opportunity for you to pull your resources together and say, this is how we're going to get our hands onto the property market. Because trying to be an individual within a struggling economy doesn't always generate the best outcomes. Thank you so much. And thank you for being so thorough in explaining the budget speech to us. We truly appreciate it, Kaya. No, thank you very much. What are your go-to tools for budgeting and keeping a handle on your finances and investments? Hit me up by leaving a voice note for the show. And all those details are in the show notes. On that note, my go-to tools are hermoney.com, a lovely website that women can use for every aspect of your financial and womanomics journey. And if you are still trying to get into the habit of actually budgeting, try some of the budgeting templates in Excel or Numbers. They're really basic and easy to use, and you'll find them populating with line items that you might not have thought to include.
That means everything, big or small, is budgeted for. What I also love about them is that they easily compare projected spending against actual spend. And you can see the shortfall between what you think you spend monthly and what you actually spend monthly. You've been listening to The Sit Down with Olwe Tulishabani, a podcast for women everywhere who are exploring the art of superwoman.